though, to be the reality that fills our vision of what being a Christian is about, and, and the cross of Jesus is vitally important. So Luke doesn't go into a lot of detail about the crucifixion. He does tell us several things about the meaning of the cross and why Jesus died on it, and he does so in this text. Particularly, this text is different uh, than other uh, gospel writers in this way that he, he uses four sayings of Jesus to kind of guide his path through this story. And so that's how we're going to go through it this morning, looking at these four specific things that Jesus says to the people around him. First one is this. And everything that he says to these people in this day, he is also saying to us today. This is the authoritative word of God for us. The first thing is Jesus speaks a gracious word of warning. Jesus speaks a gracious word of warning. In verse 28, Luke tells us that Jesus was being led away to the place of crucifixion just outside of Jerusalem. There's a large crowd uh, gathering, people following him, kind of like, you know how traffic slows down when there's an accident, and usually it's because people are slowing down and looking. Um, this is what was happening here. There was just this gathering. It was a spectacle that was happening. There were, there were some Jewish women whom Luke describes as daughters of Jerusalem. And these daughters of Jerusalem were mourning and lamenting the appalling scene in front of them. Luke doesn't go into detail about what Jesus has gone through, but at this point, Jesus is very poor off, um, very bloodied and beaten and could hardly walk. And so to these weeping women, um, they're seeing what's going on, and they're just filled with sorrow, filled with sadness. And Jesus says this, don't weep for me, Instead, weep for yourselves and your children. He tells them then that there's a time coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And to, to, to those women, that must have made very little sense. What do you mean, blessed are the barren? There, there, was a, there was a sense of having an absolute blessing of God in the bearing of children in those days specifically. It would have been shocking to them in light of how they viewed childbirth and child rearing and family. It's, but it's not just that. He also says that uh, they would want the mountains to fall on them. They'd want the hills to cover them. In, in other words, not only will there be a time coming so brutal and so difficult that they will be thankful that they have no children to rear, no children to feed, no children to have to look after, uh, but there's a time coming when they're going to say, just kill me. That's how bad things are going to get. And then he adds in verse 31 that if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Now, what does Jesus mean by all of that? Well, he's speaking specifically in this moment about a terrible suffering that was going to come to Jerusalem to those people in the near future. About 40 years later, as we come to find out, as we think about world history, when the Romans are going to come against Jerusalem, they're going to lay siege works against her, they're going to starve people to death in this siege as they force people into a, into a famine kind of uh, condition, forcing mothers of children to do horrific things with their children just to stay alive and then ultimately die brutal deaths at the Romans' hands along with having the temple utterly destroyed. This thing that was going to happen in A.D. 70 when the Romans, when Titus shows up and he wipes out Jerusalem is a brutal event in Jewish history, and it was just on the horizon. 
And Jesus is saying, look, in this, in this moment, he's saying, if the Romans are doing this to me now, a man that they've declared entirely innocent of, of, uh, of any sort of attack against the government or anything like that, what are they going to do in years in, for, to, to you in years to come when, when they actually are going to have you being guilty, seeing that you are guilty for rebellion against Rome? Or perhaps, perhaps Jesus is speaking to the, Rome, to the uh, Jewish religious leaders, and he says, if the Jews do this to their anointed one, if the Jews do this to their Messiah, who has come for their salvation, what's going to happen to them by God for killing his one and only son? Listen, this is, this is a remarkable reality here. In this point, and we don't see it in this text, but we see it in the story, when Jesus is walking on this road, and he's beaten and bloodied and so tired he can't even carry his cross, literally minutes from the cross, and he's got time to stop and warn these ladies who are weeping to warn them about the devastation to come. He was going to horrific death. Absolutely. He was going to bring salvation to all those who trust in him at that cross, though. The ladies didn't really understand that. But he had stated it repeatedly. Jesus also prophesied of the doom of Jerusalem, though. Just did so a few weeks back. This, this one specifically being the final warning that there was something coming against them, a judgment of sorts. And unbeknownst to those weeping women and all the rest of the people of that day, we know from our history books there's going to be, at the time, there was going to be AD 70. These ladies did not know. They didn't understand. The people around them certainly wouldn't have understood. But Jesus, who knows history, knows future, knew what was coming, and he was saying, Look, don't, don't weep for me. I'm going, I'm going for your salvation. You weep for anybody. Weep for yourselves because judgment's coming unless you trust in me. As we considered a few chapters ago, there's often a link between the destruction of Jerusalem in the 70th year A.D. and the actual end of the age. So it's not just A.D. 70 that's coming, but there is also something else coming in the future, some other kind of difficulty so just as there's a warning for these ladies, these Jewish women, uh, who were moved by what's happening before them in front of their eyes, uh, but they weren't trusting Jesus as their Savior and Lord, I believe that there's a warning for you and I today. And there's definitely a warning for those around this world and people that are in your families and people that are in your neighborhoods. For those among us who may know about Jesus people that are here in this room or on live stream right now, if you know about Jesus but you do not trust him, there is a day of judgment coming, a day of significant difficulty, just as surely as AD 70 was approaching those people of that day. And if we aren't trusting Jesus, no matter how much we know about him, no matter how much we come to church, no matter how terrible we think the punishment Jesus endured was, no matter how many tears you've shed, no matter how badly you felt when you watched the Passion of the Christ, we face the eternal hell of separation from God, a place that King Jesus described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or you can grow up in church and you know all about Jesus, except in the end you're like the rock. And the truth about Jesus just glances off you and it never sinks into your heart. 
And if that's you, unless you trust in Jesus and accept this salvation that Jesus purchased for us on the cross, we are not safe from the coming judgment. And we will face the just penalty of our sins against the holy God who created us. And look, if you know Jesus and if you trusted in him, that reality that you've trusted in him, and we'll get to this, should bring you great rejoicing because you are safe from the coming judgment. But there are plenty of people, some in this room and um, many around this world, who don't either believe that, the end is, that this judgment's coming or they don't, they don't, know, they don't know anything about it. Now, certainly Jesus is loving and filled with mercy and grace, and he holds both out for each of us, but we must be aware also that Jesus is the God of justice as well. For those who reject him in unbelief, those who harden themselves against their creator and God, there is the just response of judgment. Jesus is love. Yes, God is love. God is merciful, and he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and mercy, right? But he is also a God of justice. The, the response of judgment. The same Jesus who said how I started this service, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, is the same one who says unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. First word that Jesus gives us is a gracious word of warning. Gracious word of warning regarding our desperate need to be saved from the coming wrath. Second word, Jesus speaks a gracious word of forgiveness. He says in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Luke tells us that they led him to a place called the skull where he was nailed to the cross, where he was crucified. Other, other uh, gospel writers talk more about the details and everything. Luke has talked so much about the details over the, over the time in Luke that he just pretty much says, here it is. The skull, crucifixion, crucifixion, crucified. The skull, this is where he's crucified. And as, as that is happening, as he's being crucified, he's lifted up from the ground and he's slowly dying. As that's taking place, what do we see him do in those moments? Amid, amid all the pain, amid all the agony, breathing and trying to just catch his breath. What do we see him do when people are mocking him and deriding him over and over and over again? He does something remarkable. He prays. And he prays not for himself, but he prays for others. He's doing what Isaiah said he would always do, where Isaiah says in chapter 53, he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He's just doing what he's always done. He's, he's been praying. In this moment of the cross, Jesus is still aware of the Father's love. In this moment, he's, he's praying for people with his Father. His relationship with the Father is not broken at this point. There is no forsakenness in this moment. He is actually talking to his Father, asking him to forgive these who were beating him and were mocking him. When the hatred of men towards God had reached its highest point, as they're literally killing the Son of God, the one by whom and for whom all things exist and have their being, 
When the religious leaders of God's chosen people are committing the most outrageous crime in all of human history as they gleefully mock him, they gleefully deride him, and they, they, they kill the Son of God. And when Jesus himself is in such agony, he prays for the Father to forgive them. We've heard this over and over and over again through the years. Is that not amazing? When someone does something negative to you, is your impulse, pray for them. Is the glorious reality of King Jesus. And you may be wondering, if you're thinking about this text, he says, he says Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And you're, uh, ask the question, well, why, why didn't Jesus forgive them? Because we know from, years, from, from uh, weeks past, almost years past, because it was so early in Luke uh, when we studied it. So uh, Luke uh, was, was telling this story in chapter 5 about the paralytic. And Jesus made a point to heal that paralytic to prove that he had the authority to forgive sins. And so why didn't Jesus just forgive them? You ever thought about that? Jesus could have forgiven them. He had the authority to do so. He'd been given so, given that authority from the Father. But consider why Jesus is on the cross in the first place. Like we talked about last week, the, the reason Jesus is on the cross at all is to be the substitute for them, for sinful men. And in this moment, King Jesus, the perfect, innocent, spotless Son of God, would bear the sins of all who would ever trust in Him. As Paul would state it in, in, to the Corinthian church, uh, he who knew no sin was being made to be sin for all who would ever believe in Him. In fact, in fact, the entire reason that there was any hope for these people and for us, our forgiveness was on account of Jesus doing what he was doing on the cross, and that is standing in their place, condemned on the cross at that very moment. He was taking on the sins of mankind and not in a place to forgive them of their sins. He was taking on their sins. Do you, do you see that? This, is what, this was a place of condemnation for Jesus, for the sins that were being placed on him at that specific moment, and he prays that based on his sacrifice, the Father would forgive them. And he certainly could have left his mockers just to, to rot. He could have judged them on the spot as the sinners they were, but he did not. Instead, his heart in that very true historical and brutal, nobody made this story up. This story is an eyewitness account. It happened in real history, and we must do something with it. Real history, real person, real brutal moment. What Jesus did was to pray for them in that moment to be forgiven. He prayed to his Father to forgive them and to condemn him in their place. Nothing less could secure the forgiveness that they needed. Because sin against the infinite holy God requires the sacrifice of the infinite holy God in their place. Now forgive who? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Certainly it was both. And in reality, was it not you? Or was it not me? One song we enjoy singing very much, states it this way, it was our sin 
that held him there. Yeah, it, it was. Your sin and my sin and the Romans' sin and the Jews' sin. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And in one sense, they did know what they were doing. They were killing an innocent man. But on the other hand, they really didn't know, as we could see the Roman officials, they're sitting at the feet of Jesus, casting lots, while right beside them was the blood of King Jesus being spilled so that if they believed on him, they would have the everlasting life. They were totally unaware. This word of Jesus, this forgiveness, points us to the very heart of salvation that Jesus warns we are in need of because of the coming judgment, which was his first word. That, that forgiveness is realized only through a sacrificial death in that person's place. Just like in the Old Testament when a spotless lamb or goat was to be killed and after that, after the person's sins were laid on them, laid on those, that, that spotless lamb, uh, that person was forgiven. So now through trust in Jesus, our sins can be transferred onto Jesus and we can be forgiven because Jesus, the lamb of God, the perfect spotless lamb of God has been killed in our place. This is why we're going to sing in just a few moments, Jesus, thank you. That This is what has taken place. We're familiar with this story, and it lands on our hearts like a, yep, heard that before. But do you feel the grace? There is significant grace. He speaks a gracious word of forgiveness that's only found in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us. Third word, Jesus speaks a gracious word of promise. This is verse 43 where he says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And in verse 32, there were two criminals that were being led to be put to death with Jesus. We're familiar with these two guys. And people, people gathered to watch. Religious leaders sneered. Soldiers mocked. One of the criminals threw insults at him. Yet amid all of that, we hear this other criminal. In verse 40, we hear him rebuking his friend or whoever that other guy was in particular, declaring the reality of his own guilt, not just his guilt, but that guy's guilt also. Why are you even saying anything? You know we're guilty. And he's innocent. So he's declaring his guilt, declaring Jesus' innocence, and he turns to Jesus in desperation, asking him, pleading with him to remember him when he enters into his kingdom. No, really remarkable. Jesus' reply is this, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now that's a, that's a word of certainty, that's a word of promise, that's a word of assurance if I've ever heard one. The criminal was assured of the pain of the penalty of the cross in that moment. The, the, the criminal was assured of death. Each one of us are assured of death. And, and potentially pain along the way. But what he heard was a word of promise in this moment of pain and threat of death that put all of that into perspective. James says, or not James, sorry, Jesus says, today on this very day, Mr. Criminal, not tomorrow, not, not some other day, 
There's no delay, no uncertainty or waiting period. You, Mr. Criminal, of all people, hanging on the cross, worthy of death, worthy of judgment, you will be with me. The King of the Jews, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who made you, the one for whom you exist and have your being, the one in whom all life is found, you will be with me today in paradise. Now, he's, he's asked to be remembered, but Jesus assures him, I'm not only going to just remember you, we're going to be hanging out together in paradise, heaven, alive, fully at rest, where there is no more pain, where there's no more suffering, no more threat of the second death. This word of promise that Jesus gives is about the blessings of forgiveness. The blessings of the salvation that we need from the coming judgment. That is eternal life through Jesus. The, the world doesn't know what to think about heaven. Most often left to the imagination, increasingly rejected due to mankind's rejection of God and his word. But a foundational blessing of the salvation that Christ offers is that there is true life for the one who trusts in Jesus after the eyes close in death. That the very real Jesus, the, the Christ, the Son of the living God, assures us, promises us that death is not the end, but is instead the doorway to a new life for that criminal, a doorway to paradise. There was no need for the criminal to head to a place after death where he'd try to work out his salvation and try to, try to do whatever in some purgatory kind of thing. There was none of that. This sinner on the cross had no time to do anything but to look to Jesus and believe on him and be saved, and he was a guaranteed, assured eternal life because of the sacrifice of Christ. That's why Jesus was dying on the cross, to bear that man's sins and to bear our sins in our place, so that if we trust in him, we'll not only have our sins forgiven, but we'll have the joy of being with Jesus in paradise. The day these eyes close in death, they open to paradise with our king. Absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. That should float our boat. Fourth word. Jesus speaks a gracious word of certainty. It says in verse 46, Jesus calling out with a loud voice says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now these are the words of Jesus that are the last of the words of Jesus on the cross. Verse 44 tells us it's about 12 noon. And um, darkness fell over the land for three hours till about 3 p.m. Some have said, trying to think through the, you know, the natural things that might have happened during that specific time, those specific three hours in the history of mankind when Jesus was standing on the cross, or on the cross, placed on the cross, taking on our sin. And so people would say, well, it must have been an eclipse, because that's what eclipses do. We all know eclipses only last for a moment. But nevertheless, eclipses uh, could 
cause it to be darker. But the reality is that this is happening during a time called Passover. You remember that. And the Passover was a time of a full moon when an eclipse could have not been possible. There's literally no scientific reason for the sun to cease shining in this moment. None. According to the Old Testament, what happened in this moment when the sun ceased shining was on account of the anger of God. That's it. Was God angry at the Romans? Yeah. Was God angry at the Jews? Yep. The crowd? Sure. Us? Yep. But specifically in that moment, he is furious with his son. He's angry at his beloved son. As Jesus hung on that cross, he became sin for you and for me. He took on our sins. He bore all of our sins, just as Isaiah prophesied so clearly of in Isaiah 53. And the cup of God's wrath was being poured out on Jesus. This afternoon when the sermon follow-up goes out to you, there'll be a, a narrative from Good Friday from a few years ago that I shared. And, and boy, take time to watch that. It's about, I think, 23 minutes long or something like that to understand what's happening in this moment when the sins of all of mankind who would ever hope in Jesus were poor, being poured out on Jesus in that moment when darkness was all across the land. The other Gospels tells us Tell us that Jesus uh, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here was the first time in all of history, all of eternity, and the last time in all of eternity that the Father abandoned his one and only Son, who though entirely innocent and without sin, he had been made sin, truly had been made sin for us. All the sins of all who would ever trust in him laid on him. Your sin, my sin, the grossest of sins, all of those sins laid on Jesus. But then the sun started shining. At three o'clock, the sun started shining. No more darkness. Jesus knew the penalty for our sins had been paid. The evidence? But look at what Luke says happened. He says, The veil in the temple was torn in two. That curtain of the temple that served as the barrier preventing people from coming into the Holy of Holies to, to be in God's presence was torn from top to bottom, as Mark says in chapter 15. The way into the presence of God was now open for all who trust in Christ. The mission of Jesus was now accomplished. Jesus can now give himself over to death. His work was done. And just before he dies, he cries out his final word, one final word, to who? His father. Now, honestly, I've never seen this. Never really thought about it, I should say. And for three hours, his relationship with his father was done. Broken. Now, sacrifice accepted. And he prays to his father again. Reconciled to his dad. And he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And after saying that, the king, the Lord of my life, the Lord of your life, the Lord of this world, on his own accord, breathed his last. And he died fully reconciled to his father. This is a gracious word. A gracious word of certainty of salvation through Jesus. Even our greatest enemy, death itself, with all of us are going to succumb to, and most people are reluctant to even consider, not even death can touch our salvation through the body and blood and the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. Want an example? Acts chapter 7 and 8. Stephen first Christian martyr, followed the example of the Savior in praying for the risen and ascended Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father to receive His Spirit. Or consider the words of Paul, the Apostle Paul, where he says, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. Listen, because our salvation through Jesus is absolutely certain, you and I who believe can have both calm in our hearts and absolute and eternal certainty as we face the temporal certainty and difficulty of death. In Christ, on account of all of His sacrifice in our place on the cross, our salvation is sure. Our eternity is fixed. Our salvation is certain. And we can trust in it and we can live in the good of it. So, so here in this familiar text… What is it we've heard from Jesus? Jesus has warned us of our need of salvation. He's told us that there is no salvation apart from forgiveness found in the death of Jesus in our place, and He's promised that this salvation is eternal life with Him in heaven, and He's declared to us that nothing can take it away. Listen, as amazing as this is, people respond differently on that day and people respond differently to this great news on this day. For some, having heard the good news, this gospel, it falls like water on that rock. For others, it lands on them as a sponge, and it is the best news ever. In our text, we see both responses, the response of rejection See the religious leaders sneering, mocking, deriding, declaring, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, which we know he's not because we know all things. If he's the Christ of God, let him save himself. It's his chosen one, whatever, total rejection. The Romans, total rejection. Soldiers mocking Jesus. No grasp of their guilt before God no grasp of who Jesus is, and assumes really he's no better than them. He, they outright reject him. You think about the other criminal on the cross, and the other criminal, that, not the criminal that asks Jesus to remember him, but the other one, he has no idea of his guilt. He might know his guilt, but he doesn't care. And he certainly doesn't care who Jesus is. And he mocks him on the cross, and he rejects him. You see the crowd the crowd's rejecting him. Even the daughters of Jerusalem, even though they're weeping, they're weeping about the pain, the sorrow that's happening. They don't necessarily believe. It's still this rejection of Jesus. All these like rocks that the water of the words of grace and salvation just bounce off of. Well, that's one way to respond. 
It's not a, it's not a good way to respond. But it's one of your options today. Will you respond like that? Rejecting Jesus? There's also the response of acceptance. Consider the other criminal for a moment. What can be attributed in my mind to the power of the Holy Spirit? He somehow understood the reality of his guilt in that moment. His eyes were open to see the Christ on the cross. He, he does not recognize only his guilt. He recognized Jesus' innocence. But it's not just he recognizes his innocence. He believed Jesus truly to be the king. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. It's, it's as though this man who did not have any time to be in church and hear this good news, he sees Jesus, is moved upon by the Holy Spirit to see his guilt, and he sees Jesus for who he is, and he sees him as the innocent king who is dying for his people, and he says, remember me. It sounds to me like he's repentant. He's repenting and believing the message of the kingdom. He admits his sin, he turns from it. He knows he's not good enough. He certainly does not have time to go and make things right. He simply knew he needed to be saved, and he believed Jesus to be the king in whom forgiveness and hope was found, and he trusted him. Basic, basic truth of Christianity. And kids, you can get it, and adults, you can get it. The reality is Jesus loves you, and he died for you. So if you just believe in him and trust him, he will forgive you of all your sins. Don't complicate things. You got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. No. Admit your guilt before God and believe in your heart that Jesus did what he did. He is who he is and he died for your sin. And listen, this news doesn't get old for the one who believes. This news erupts afresh again and again and again and again. I've been waiting for this chapter for 23 chapters, almost two years. Consider the Roman centurion just for a moment. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Don't know much about this centurion, but it seems as though he'd been given eyes to see. And it says he praised God. He didn't just kind of go, hmm. But he praised God and said, declared the truth of who Jesus is. Belief and worship. And of course, in verse 49, see the acquaintances of Jesus and the women who had been accompanying him, standing at the distance watching. We don't see it there, but we see it just a few days. These people can be set on fire for Christ and follow him in the power of the Spirit. There are only two responses to these words of grace, these words about salvation, rejection or acceptance. And so the question of all questions this morning is which, which way will you respond? The gospel has been proclaimed hopefully, clearly this morning, and you must respond. 
You've heard the word of warning telling you that you need to be saved. You've heard the word of forgiveness telling you that through Jesus' sacrificial death, you can be forgiven uh, your sins against holy God. You've heard the word of promise that for all who look to Christ for forgiveness will enjoy eternal life in the presence of Jesus in heaven. And you've heard that nothing, not even death, can touch the certainty of this salvation found in King Jesus. So how will you respond It's not enough to be intrigued by Jesus. It's not enough to come to church and be moved uh, by the story of Jesus, even to cry tears of whatever. Listen, to limit your response to intrigue, to limit your response to mild interest, to, to limit your response to some level of emotion is to just as well be the one who laughs in Jesus' face. You need to accept these words of grace. Believe in your heart who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for you. To receive and to believe, to repent of your sins and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, friends, you can know the certainty of forgiveness and you can know the assurance of eternal life in the presence of Jesus in a paradise, in heaven, for eternity. And that should infuse everything we do. For those of us who have accepted Christ Jesus, Let us rejoice and be glad. And listen, this is the message that we take to the nations. That message, we take that message to the nations, to our neighbors, to our family. Not just a list of rules and regulations and all that kind of stuff. We take to them that message. And even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, it says at the end when Paul's telling the Corinthian church as he's correcting their, their, their attitudes and their heart attitudes about, about the Lord's Supper, he says, hey, every time you eat this bread, every time you drink this cup, we're doing what? Proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So maybe we've filled with joy this morning that our sins have been forgiven if we trust in Jesus. And if there's some here that don't know Jesus, who have not trusted in Jesus, oh man, will you come to him? Trust in him. Confess your sins to him. Believe on him and be saved. If you are a believer, you have trusted in Jesus, you know, you don't have it all together, right? None of us do. We come as those having received the good news of forgiveness, and we've accepted it by God's grace. It's an action of the Holy Spirit in us at work to cause us to open up our eyes to see.